0: I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 26th. This is an election update from Post Reports.
1: Madam President. The majority leader. We have ordered in the Senate.
0: The Senate will be in order. The Senate is expected to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court on Monday night, just a little over a week before the election. It's a dramatic victory for President Trump and for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell.
1: Now, the framers knew the independent judiciary would be a crucial part of this new experiment in self-government. So how fortunate for our country that the Senate just advanced one of the most qualified nominees for judicial service that we've seen in our lifetimes.
2: Policy-wise, there may be no thing that is more important to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell than judges. Sung
0: Min Kim is a White House reporter for The Post.
2: And he encapsulated it pretty well in a floor speech Sunday afternoon when he acknowledged.
1: A lot of what we've done over the last four years will be undone sooner or later by the next election. We won't be able to do much about this for a long time to come.
2: This is gonna stick around for a while, and especially Amy Coney Barrett. She is only 48 years old. She will be the youngest Supreme Court uh, Justice once she is confirmed and installed to the Supreme Court. And that means she could serve on the court for decades to come. His memoir is called The Long Game. And this is one example here where he's really thinking the long, long game here and really looking to craft a legacy that stays long after Republicans lose control of the White House and the Senate.
0: Well, and that is the next question, right? That this is one battle that Mitch McConnell has been waging for the last several weeks to get Barrett confirmed as a justice. But at the same time, He's fighting in his own re-election race. He's fighting for continued control of the Senate for Republicans. He's fighting for continued control of the White House and hoping that President Trump gets re-elected. So what is his calculus on whether this fight over Barrett could make it more difficult in all these other fights that he's trying to win?
2: Well, right after the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we kind of saw the political dynamics start to emerge and whether this could hurt Republicans or help Republicans, it was a really fascinating um, decision, if you would say, that McConnell kind of had to make. Do you go ahead and Rush through a very conservative Supreme Court justice who, you know, to be frank, gets Republicans voters excited, but obviously just angers and galvanizes liberals, and perhaps could help Democrats on November third. But do you kind of risk that and cement a six three conservative majority for um, on the Supreme Court for years, if not a generation? At this point, it's it's where kind of your two. Yeah. <laughs> goals, you know, stay in power as majority leader or, you know, confirm a Supreme Court justice, could have been in conflict with each other. And for those of us who've watched Mitch McConnell, he loves power, loves judges, but I think it was pretty clear what he was going to choose. He knows, again, like he said, confirming lifetime appointments to the judiciary is something that lasts long after Republicans lose control. And it is remains to be seen whether this is going to politically help or politically hurt. Obviously, McConnell is running for re-election in Kentucky, a very conservative state. And this is something that really helps him. His Democratic challenger, Amy McGrath, has always kind of tripped up on the issue of judges and the Supreme Court when she's campaigned against him. As for the other races that Republicans need to win in order for McConnell to stay majority leader, I think we've kind of come to the conclusion that this does not help Republicans in Maine or Colorado, but perhaps in other states, it kind of helps bring Republican voters home and maybe helps Republican candidates there.
0: I'm also curious about McConnell's relationship with President Trump because it has seemed over the past four years that McConnell has seen Trump as somewhat of a means to an end, that they are in lockstep, specifically on confirming conservative judges on a federal level, and that even though they might not be aligned on everything, that they sort of found a way to work together. But I wonder if there have been indications in recent months that McConnell is thinking about a world after Trump or is in some ways not working quite in alignment with President Trump anymore.
2: So Trump and McConnell, first of all, have had an interesting relationship for the last four years because these are two men who could not have more different personalities. Um, But their shared goal is that they like to win especially on the judiciary, you've got a Senate majority leader whose mantra has been basically leave no vacancy behind. And Trump, who just likes to win to the point that he keeps exaggerating the number of federal judges confirmed under his tenure at campaign rallies. So despite their diametrically different personalities um, and obviously points where McConnell has kind of had to gently scold the president or distance himself from the president at times, they've been able to work Decently well um, on a lot of these shared initiatives, but there definitely have been times where they had to differ recently. And one is a stimulus deal.
0: And and can I just ask is is it fair to say that this is not going to happen? That like this is the last week before the election, and we're not going to see a stimulus deal.
2: I mean, I keep tweeting pictures of the gif of like Lucy and the football taking the football (laughs) away from Charlie Brown at the last minute. I mean, this is, it's look like it it, for certainly not before the election. I mean, we've been watching uh, Pelosi and Mnuchin talk a lot over this agreement, But uh, Senate Republicans have been really reticent to embrace a deal, especially anything in the neighborhood of the dollar signs that, um, that the two are discussing. And President Trump, who's never really been someone who's cared about the debt or deficits, has said, we should go even more. Let's go higher. Let's go above $2 trillion for this package, which is something that clearly McConnell and Senate Republicans have made clear that they're not going to embrace. And I think another really good example where McConnell has kind of, you know, dissed the White House in his own kind of McConnell way is when he was pretty frank about the fact that he has avoided White House property because of how how the White House has managed the coronavirus pandemic on their own grounds. Hmm. McConnell, Like he's afraid of
0: just getting sick by right. going he to the White House and talking to White House officials. He Hattus just physically officials.
2: doesn't want to go there. I mean, McConnell and Trump actually had a standing meeting every month. For McConnell to go to the White House and to talk about Senate races, it was just kind of an update, state of play. I believe this was around the time of the president's own coronavirus diagnosis. McConnell said he hasn't been to the White House since early August.
1: And I personally didn't feel that they were approaching protection from this illness in the same way that I thought was appropriate for the Senate. And the Senate has been operating in a way that I think has largely prevented contraction of this uh, disease as we operate in the Senate.
2: He basically thinks that the way they handle the pandemic on their own grounds is not the way that he thinks they are handling it in the Senate, uh, which is a lot better, frankly, than the White House.
0: So then thinking toward the future, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen on November 3rd. But if there is a sense of concern from McConnell and from other Senate Republicans about whether or not they're going to be able to retain control of the Senate after November— What do you think that would look like for McConnell in the future? Like, who is he if he is not Senate Majority Leader, and what are his goals then?
2: I think we can see basically what his role would be by reexamining his role in the first several years of the Obama administration when he was Senate Minority Leader against a President Barack Obama, against a Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. And he was really able to keep his ranks together to Block a lot of initiatives and frankly, a lot of judges too by the Obama administration. I mean, for going back to the issue of judges, one of the reasons that Democrats say they pulled the nuclear option in 2013 to change a lot of the confirmation rules for a lot of these judges is because they had to. Republicans constantly filibustered anyone uh, that President Barack Obama nominated. And then basically we're trying to prevent Obama from filling these seats on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which we know is the second most powerful federal court in the country.
0: So as long as McConnell does get reelected himself, There's not a scenario where you sort of see him going off into the sunset, right? That he will bring that same strategy and discipline to whatever he does next, even if that is Senate minority leader.
2: Definitely. I mean, he's going to be a pretty forceful minority leader if Republicans lose control of the Senate uh, next week. Biden has talked a lot about how he was able to come to deals with Mitch McConnell when nothing else could happen, but it has to be the right deal. You know, McConnell is as politically astute as they come, and he is going to um, primarily focus on keeping his ranks together to prevent what he feels are bad policies that are going to be put forward by Democrats if they are in charge of basically all levers of Washington next year.
0: Sungmin Kim is a White House reporter for The Post.
3: It was remarkable how much you heard about the Affordable Care Act in these hearings.
1: November 10th is the absolute date they have to fill the vacancy if the president and those who support him are going to keep their promise to end the Affordable Care Act. They need that ninth justice. They're framing you as a real threat to health care coverage.
3: I'm not here on a mission to destroy the Affordable Care Act. I'm just here to apply the law and adhere to the rule of law. In fact, I think at one point I tweeted, is this a 2009 Senate hearing on the Affordable Care Act or is this an Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing? (laughs) Because it seemed like that was kind of one of the only things Democrats really wanted to talk about. Were you aware of President Trump's opposition to the
1: Affordable Care Act during that time. The fate of the ACA at risk. And when he appointed Judge Barrett to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat, the president said that eliminating the Affordable Care Act would be, quote, a big win for the USA.
0: As the full Senate moves to confirm Barrett on Monday, Democrats are eyeing one case that's coming before the Supreme Court this fall. It's a case that questions whether the ACA is constitutional.
3: This case has been percolating really for the last couple of years and involves a challenge to the Affordable Care Act, which really stems from the
0: 2012 ruling by the Supreme Court upholding it. Paige Winfield Cunningham is a health policy reporter for The Post, and she's covered the many ways the ACA has survived legal challenges over the years. The key reason for why the court upheld the law
3: in 2012 is no longer there, and that is the penalty for lacking health coverage. Hmm. That's a penalty that Congress repealed in 2017. And, and
0: i remember that this and i think this is called the the mandate right like that this is a big part of how healthcare was supposed to work is that the only way that you can get everyone on board and like make it sort of financially feasible for the country is that if you don't have healthcare then you have to pay a tax essentially or pay like a cost for the fact that you are not insured and then if you get into some kind of health trouble that the government is going to have to pay for you later Right. It was seen
3: as the linchpin of this whole thing where, you know, the idea was that the Affordable Care Act was going to extend all of these benefits that were going to especially help people that were sicker, that were more expensive to insure. But in order for it, to, so that the insurers wouldn't go completely underwater financially, you also had the mandate, which was saying, hey, even if you're healthy, no matter what, everybody has to buy health coverage or you're going to have to face uh, a tax
0: penalty. But then that critical part of the ACA, this kind of penalty for not having health insurance, that went away. So it seems like this lawsuit is about, well, if that part went away, then does the whole ACA need to go away? And
3: basically what this lawsuit says is that the law is no longer constitutional because the mandate to buy coverage has been zeroed out by Congress and because the court in 2012 said that the mandate was constitutional and therefore the rest of the law was constitutional because that mandate is essentially gone, that the entire law must now fall. And the challenge has been brought by Texas and more than a dozen other Republican
0: Led states. But it feels like just even in the past couple of weeks, there's like this renewed energy about where this case is in its legal process, the timing of it. Like, why does it feel so urgent right now?
3: I think a lot of it is politically driven. You know, this is an issue that Democrats have really capitalized off of. What you've seen over the last couple of weeks is them really seizing this opportunity of there being a, you know, Supreme Court vacancy and now the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to talk about this this lawsuit. And they're really making the argument that adding another conservative justice to the Supreme Court essentially is going to be a very likely vote to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. That's the political message that we're hearing. But when you talk to legal scholars, the chances that the court will strike the entire law seem to be
0: much less. And why is that? Why is it that there are doubts that the Supreme Court would rule in a way that would completely dismantle the ACA, even if Amy Coney Barrett is a justice on the court and does side with the more conservative justices?
3: I would say two things to that. Um, The first is that, you know, when this lawsuit was first filed several years ago, a lot of people were really scoffing at it. I mean, the argument seemed so ridiculous at the outset, because basically— the states are are saying that the mandate is required for the entire law to stand. Well, clearly, that's not what Congress intended. Clearly, Congress zeroed out the mandate, but didn't repeal the rest of the Affordable Care Act. So it's obvious hmm. that the legislature felt that it was fine for the rest of the law to stand without the mandate, that the mandate was not necessary for the Affordable Care Act. In that way, Congress has made its intent known. And yet the the bringers of this lawsuit Are arguing the very opposite. And so from the very beginning, it was really remarkable that a lot of conservative legal scholars who actually disliked the Affordable Care Act and wanted the court to strike it down back in 2012, they've actually come out and said, this is a really silly argument. It doesn't Hmm. have a lot of legal grounds, and we don't agree with that. And you've actually seen some of these conservatives team up with more liberal scholars to actually ask the court to uphold the Affordable Care Act in this case. So there's that part of it. And then the other question has to do with an issue known as severability. What does that mean? You heard a lot about this term severability uh, in in Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings. So the doctrine of severability um, is a doctrine essentially of statutory interpretation. And what it means... Severability has to do with if the court finds one piece of a law unconstitutional and and strikes it down, is the rest of the statute able to stand? So if you picture severability being like a Jenga game, it's kind of if you pull one out, Can you pull it out while it all stands? Or if you pull two out, will it still stand? So Justice Scalia... Where that comes to bear in this case is the question, is the Affordable Care Act uh, severable from the individual mandate? So the two questions the court is being asked is, A, is the individual mandate constitutional? Uh, if, If the court says the mandate is constitutional, then... That's the end of the case in the entire law stance. So if the court rules the mandate is unconstitutional, then they're faced with a second question, which is, can the rest of the law stand without it? And that goes to the issue of severability. And that's why you saw a lot of senators, particularly Republicans, trying to get Amy Coney Barrett to explain how she views the issue of severability. And what was her answer to that she seemed to indicate that she's she's open and perhaps embracing of this idea and the presumption is always in favor of severability and so the idea there is that if the court is able to hold up most of a statute then it should do so even if it's ruling part of that statute to be unconstitutional uh, the main thing is the doctrine of severability has a purpose presumption to save the statute if possible. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. But even if this is what she said during her confirmation hearings, what have we heard from Amy Coney Barrett in the past about her feelings about the ACA and also about these ideas of severability?
3: Yeah, so in the past, uh, and this is something that has given Democrats cause for worry, she has seemed sympathetic to conservative justices on the court who wanted to strike down Obamacare. In a 2017 law review article she seemed to be critical of Chief Justice Roberts' 2012 opinion, which sustained the mandate. And at that, in that law review article, she wrote that Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. And then she also seemed to express sympathy with the conservatives in another 2015 ruling, which was challenging another um, kind of technical error in the law. But I, I would note, you know, even if she were to side that the mandate is unconstitutional, that doesn't necessarily mean she would vote to strike the rest of the law. And if the court strikes down the mandate, it would have virtually no practical effect on Americans. And that's because over the last, you know, two years, there has no longer been a penalty for lacking health coverage. Congress mm-hmm. basically took the teeth out of that. So the real question goes to that severability question of whether the the ACA can stand without the mandate.
0: Even though legal experts seem to be skeptical about whether or not the entire ACA could fall because of this one case— I think the reason why so many Democrats are concerned and so many average Americans are concerned is because the importance of the Affordable Care Act in their lives, especially now in the middle of a pandemic where health care is more vital than ever. So what, what do you think that does, this idea of the ACA being imperiled at this really critical juncture? If the court were
3: to do what the trump administration and the republican led states are asking them to do which is strike the whole law it would have a huge effect on the healthcare system you would see you know an overturning of the medicaid expansion which has covered a lot of people you would see the marketplaces where you can get subsidized private coverage dissolve you would see these protections for people with pre-existing conditions dissolve the effects would be huge and that's what democrats have been emphasizing but I think it's important to note when, when you're thinking about the likelihood and sort of the way the court is thinking about this. I think most legal scholars are doubtful that the court, even a conservative led court with an Amy Coney Barrett, would be convinced that the entire law is to be
0: rendered unconstitutional. Paige Winfield Cunningham is a health policy reporter for The Post. Now, one more thing.
4: On Sunday, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, was on CNN and he said,
1: We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics and other mitigation areas. Why aren't we going to get control of the pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not make efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it.
4: He essentially made it seem as if the White House was giving up on the idea of controlling this pandemic, which is spiraling out of control in parts of the country. And instead, they were going to focus on therapeutics and vaccines and helping people who catch the virus rather than keeping people from catching the virus. My name is Tolu Olorunipa, and I cover the White House for The Post. I think they realize that this is a political inconvenience for them to have this virus surging out of control right before the election, and they're trying to change the narrative. But of course, we know that hundreds of people are continuing to die on a daily basis, and the fact that cases are going up inevitably means that more deaths are on the way. So it is a curious approach from the White House, but I think they have realized that they have failed to control the virus. Over the weekend, we also learned of another outbreak in the White House. Vice President Pence's staff, multiple members of his staff have tested positive in recent days for the coronavirus, including his chief of staff, Mark Short. Now, normally you would expect when there is an outbreak for that office to go into lockdown, for people to quarantine. We saw a similar situation earlier in the month when President Trump caught the coronavirus and multiple members of his White House staff also caught the virus and it was sort of a state of chaos and everyone had to go into quarantine and they had to sort of do contact tracing it's a very different mood now with vice president pence continuing to travel saying that he is an essential worker and he is not going to quarantine for 14 days as you would expect from someone who has been surrounded by people who have tested positive for this virus but mark how is going all over the country How is that campaigning? How is that essential work? It's not like he's helping to contain the virus. In fact, the opposite, he's holding rallies that could be spreading the virus.
1: Well, actually, he's not just campaigning, he's working. We saw a a Middle East peace agreement with Sudan in the Oval Office that the president engaged in. And for anybody to suggest that the president has been out campaigning and not getting things done, uh, all you have to do is look at the facts. He was at a campaign rally in Tallahassee.
4: It's a sign of that shift that now that the White House realizes that they don't want to try to control the virus, they want to learn how to live with the virus, as President Trump said on the debate stage a few days back.
1: Soon. I say we're learning to live with it. We have no choice. We can't lock ourselves up in a basement like Joe does. He has the...
4: <laughs> and that includes Vice President Pence essentially saying, even though I have been exposed to the virus, I am not going to change my campaign schedule. I'm going to continue traveling around the country, continue holding rallies, and continuing to live as if the virus is not uh, a pandemic that, that should be upending American life. The interesting thing about the president's response is that he has been focused on his election all the way through this pandemic. He's tried to downplay the virus. He's tried to you know, help his political fortunes by not having people panic over the virus. And now it's turning out when you look at the polling that his unwillingness to be upfront with the American people to take this as seriously as he should, to put forward public health guidelines and to follow those guidelines himself has put him in a precarious position in his own political standing in terms of how people view him and how they view how he has handled this crisis. It is a, a difficult political position that the president finds himself in, and it is sort of a result of his own making of taking this approach of you know allowing this shift toward, focusing on therapeutics and vaccines rather than containing a virus that is still killing hundreds of Americans every day.
0: Tolu Olorunipa covers the White House for The Post. Coronavirus cases are surging in the U.S., with huge outbreaks now in states that had been protected by their low population density—states like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Last week, the U.S. hit a record high of more than 83,000 new cases in one day. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. Thanks for listening.